Good morning, everyone. My name is Nelson, and uh, it's my privilege to uh, open up the scriptures with us this morning. Um, it's, uh, we're in a season of change as a church. If this is your very first Sunday at Artisan, um, you should know that January has been a month. Our uh, co-founding lead pastor just resigned, uh, and last week we had a farewell gathering of some might say epic proportions. Um, that happened, and now that is a, a thing of the past, and in many ways we're entering a new normal as a church. Uh, the resignation of a co-founding lead pastor is, is a big change. Um, it was really weird for me yesterday walking to the office on the other side of, of last Sunday and the other side of Lance's final day, and it was strange, and it was a bit sad, and there were, there were a few more tears, and along with that, just this awareness that this is, is going to take some time. To, to adjust to this new normal, and that's okay. Um, so some big things have changed, but I was also reminded that a bunch of things haven't. Uh, Artisan still exists to join God in the renewal of all things. We still gather here at, at 1030. We start around that time, give or take, at the Japanese Hall in our city's downtown east side. This, this is the same neighborhood that we've been in for about three and a half years. There's still a team of faithful individuals that arrive early to set up the chairs that you're all sitting on in the same way so we can see each other with the table at the center. We still send our kids upstairs where they have space for their own learning time and there are still teachers and helpers who still faithfully take on that aspect of our shared life on Sundays. We still, as we've been doing, sing songs to exalt the Trinity. These songs shape us in turn into something more holy and human. We still open the scriptures, believing into the reality that the story they bear witness to is still good news, both for us and for our wider culture. And we still worship the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You with me? So we're heading back into the book of Acts. Remember how we were doing that before Advent? Uh, if you have been around, you will remember that. Now, I'm not going to attempt a, a deep dive review. Scott and I were kind of discussing, all right, how do we enter back into this? Maybe we would do a whole previously in Acts kind of sermon. Um, that is a thought. We could have done that. I, I'm not going to attempt that, but I will in the course of this sermon, especially early on, try to catch us up a little bit as to where we are in the story, give a little bit bigger context. But I also want to bring back this great quote by Barbara Brown Taylor that inspired the subtitle of our series. And um, as Barbara Brown Taylor was reflecting on what happened when the spirit fell on the early Christ followers on the, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two, she says this. The Holy Spirit had entered into them, these early Christ followers, the same way it had entered into Mary, the mother of Jesus, and for the same reason. It was time for God to be born again, not in one body this time, but in a body of believers who would receive the breath of life from their Lord and pass it on using their own bodies to distribute the gift. The book of Acts is the story of their adventures, which is why I like to think of it as the gospel of the Holy Spirit. In the first four books of the New Testament, we learn the good news of what God did through Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we learn the good news of what God did through the Holy Spirit by performing artificial 
resuscitation on a room full of well-intentioned bumblers and turning them into a force that changed the history of the world. It's good to just come back to that, right? Just remember, this is the continuity of the story uh, which we find ourselves in continuity with. And so one way to increase our dependency on the Holy Spirit is to spend time in this amazing book that contains these early church adventure stories. And so today we come to one of those sections where there's a lot of space between headings. It starts Acts 6 verse 8, and it has to do with this guy called Stephen. And it's one story, but it takes up a fair chunk of space, 68 verses to be precise. So whose great idea it was to sort of follow up Lance's Farewell Sunday with a 68 verse pericope? Oh, that was me. Okay, so... In my Bible, the headings break down neatly into three sections. Stephen is seized, Stephen gives a speech, and Stephen is stoned. Now, I feel like I need to briefly clarify. (laughs) What? Um, What's meant by the word stoned in this context? Now, it's not what the average person in our city might think. It's about people who held religious power in that day, throwing so many rocks at a man that it killed him. It just took a dark turn there. One commentary I was reading broke down the sections like this. The trial, testimony, and termination of Stephen. Now, I appreciate alliteration as much as the next preacher down the block, but I kind of just felt, is this the time? Is it now? In any case, if you like that, okay. Um, but this is where we're going today. Now, we're going to get into Stephen's story in a moment, but let's notice what's happening at this point in the book of Acts. A recognizable pattern is emerging as these early Christ followers seek to live faithfully into their mission. So Peter and John are speaking in Jerusalem. They're performing miracles, uh, healings. People are responding. And it's great because from time to time, Luke, the author of Acts, offers these great summary statements. Here's one from chapter 5. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets, laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. They are, as some might like to say, making an impact. This is what's going on. The religious authorities, on the other hand, are not impressed. Early in chapter 4, there's a moment where it says they were greatly disturbed. So they do things like seize the apostles. They throw them in jail. This happened on a couple of occasions so far. We're only in chapter 6. Warning them not to speak again in the name of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit just emboldens them all the more. Right after the summary I just read, 517, if you still got your finger there, notice. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So the religious establishment are finding themselves in a precarious place. They're feeling increasingly threatened, and they seem to be growing less afraid to take action. So we could frame the narrative in Acts up to this point like this. The church bears witness to Jesus, 
and they do stuff in the power of the Spirit, and they face serious and growing opposition, but they just keep going. Or we could just quote Kelly Clarkson, who said, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's kind of a summary of Acts up to this point. You're welcome. But what if something does kill you? Remember the end of this story that we're just looking at. Now let's hold that question for now, and let's dive into the story. So first off, who is Stephen? What do we know about him? What do we need to know? Well, Luke has already actually mentioned him to us. If you recall from the last sermon that uh, that we preached in Acts before we started Advent, Stephen was one of the seven chosen to help oversee the church's food ministry. So as part of that crew, he was said to be full of the spirit and wisdom. And then he himself is described as full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And now in our text, he's reintroduced as someone full of God's grace and power, filled with the spirit, filled with wisdom, faith, grace, and power. One writer said he evidently gave people an impression of plenitude. I love that combination of grace and power. Someone described this as sweetness and strength merged into one personality. Do you know people like that? Grace seems to convey this amiable Christ-like character And while Stephen's power was seen in the great wonders and miraculous signs, he had been performing in the public square. Now, what's interesting to me is that this is the first time in this scriptural narrative that signs and wonders are ascribed to someone other than Jesus or the apostles more generally. So here Stephen is named, Philip will be soon, uh, named among those who did things that were beyond ordinary human capacity. So if nothing else... This makes me think of what Peter declared in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, that a new dawn had arisen for the church. That they'd entered a time when the Holy Spirit had indeed been poured out on all people, regardless of race, of gender, of social status. And guess what? We're still in that time. We're still living in the age of the Spirit of Christ. So one more thing to add to our list of things that haven't changed. So Stephen... With all these descriptors, he's kind of a big deal. And yet, despite all these amazing qualities, his ministry provoked some aggressive antagonism. Here's how it went down. Verse 8 of chapter 6 up to just the first verse of of chapter 7. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people And the elders and the teachers of the law, they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? Are these charges true? 
So what charges again? Well, he had been accused essentially of speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law, of saying that Jesus would destroy the temple, would change the customs Moses had given, and these were customs that had serious cultural and religious weight. How was he to respond? He could have simply said no. They're obviously false. Maybe his life would have been spared. I don't really know. He can't know. Acts is not a choose-your-own-adventure story. So we're left with what did happen. Stephen could have said no, but instead he decides to preach the second longest sermon in Scripture. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew being the longest, and it's certainly the longest in the book of Acts. And what he does is takes the bull by the horns and he goes for the big picture. He tells pretty much the whole story. And it's a story his accusers would know well. But what's interesting is that he retold Jewish history up to that point in a way that was unfamiliar to the Sanhedrin. He chose a different lens through which to view the story. And in effect, he says to his accusers, tell the story again from the beginning and get it right this time. Pace out the whole journey from Abraham onwards, then and only then will you understand who Jesus is and what I and my friends who believe in him have and haven't been saying. What matters, in other words, is not just the story itself, but how it's being told. And that explains why a lot of the speech doesn't seem to answer the charges directly. So what we have to do is listen intently to see the way he's telling the whole story, to notice which aspects out of the literally thousands of things we might conclude are the main point. Notice what Stephen wants to highlight. Stephen, the one who his fellow travelers have discerned to be full of the spirit and of wisdom and grace and power. So instead of a head-on rebuttal of the charges, he chooses a kind of outflanking movement. So the false witnesses, again, have accused him of saying Jesus was going to destroy the temple, change the law. Seeing the work of Christ through a negative, destructive lens, what Stephen was in fact doing was preaching Jesus positively and constructively as the one in whom everything the Old Testament foreshadowed comes to fruition, including the temple and the law. Still with me? So he's tell the story this way, he's saying, and you'll see what I'm saying about Jesus and how it relates to everything else. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing, but let's walk through a few key points of Stephen's selective retelling. 7, verse 2, to this, uh, he's just been asked, are these charges true? And to this replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. He starts with Abraham. Actually, he starts with God, the God of glory. So just in case anyone wants to repeat the charge that Stephen's speaking blasphemous words against God, the God of their ancestors, he wants to set things straight from the beginning. This is what God did. Get the story right. But then we get to Abraham, and this is where the story of the Jewish people begins. It's with Abraham and the Genesis, and that Genesis begins the story of how the world is to be set right. Tom Wright articulates this so well. He says, the story of the people of Israel does not come as a separate freestanding entity, but as a way of saying, this is how the creator God is acting to deal with the problem of human sin, social catastrophe, and cosmic disaster as set out in Genesis 3, 
to 11. The whole history of the people of Israel is to be understood under this rubric. The call of Abraham to be different, to leave his ancestral home and go to a new land is a way of marking him out, of giving him a new vocation. Stephen isn't denying that, he's insisting on it. Now Stephen's going to go on to speak about the importance of the holy land that God promises to Abraham's descendants. The land isn't something that's been mentioned specifically in the charges against him, but Stephen, full of wisdom, remember, is a man who knew his audience. To a first century Jew, your understanding of the promised land mattered a great deal. And so eventually, we see Stephen carefully setting up the scene for the story of the Exodus, which along with God's covenant for Abraham, lies close to the core of Jewish identity. But before he gets there, Stephen's already weaving into the plot a point that he'll develop further in talking about Moses. Chapter 7, verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. Pause there. So Joseph was rejected by his brothers, remember how this story goes, but God used him to become ruler of Pharaoh's entire household and indeed the whole land of Egypt. And later, when his brothers needed food, the man they had to go see was the man they'd been jealous of and rejected. And fortunately for them, Joseph was gracious and gave them what they needed. Is this theme ringing any bells? Did any of Stephen's original hearers begin to see it? Stephen is showing us how to tell the story. The story of the Old Testament, the story of Jesus as both the apex of Hebrew scripture and the groundwork of all that lay ahead. The story of the church from its earliest days until now. Moses comes next. Now, it's hard to overemphasize the place Moses occupies in ancient Judaism. He's more important than Abraham, more important than David, Solomon, Elijah. Moses was the one through whom God gave the law, along with its fascinating details, its strict prohibitions, and serious commands. Now, there was, of course, already a wide diversity of opinion on how the Mosaic law ought to be interpreted but no one questioned that it was this law over and against everything else that should establish the way God's people ought to live. The law in the ancient Jewish mind was God's will. It's full stop, it's fixed, unchangeable, set in stone. So that is the context to keep in mind when we recall Stephen was being accused of going soft on Moses and his law. Okay, says Stephen, let's go back to the Moses story. Let's see what it says. And as he does, he highlights three things in particular. A couple more verses. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech 
and action. So one highlight here, we could say this way, Moses was raised up by God and trained in such a way that through a strange providence, he became exactly the right kind of leader for God's people. Remember how the story went? The new king called Pharaoh in Egypt had in mind to oppress the Hebrews. And part of his method was to kill off all the Hebrew male children so these people didn't become too numerous. But while Moses' parents had to abandon him because of this edict, what happens? None other than Pharaoh's own daughter rescues Moses and brings him up as her own son, which resulted in his being educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians, which was already legendary in Old Testament times. So to put it another way, God planned for Moses to be just the person he needed for what God had in mind. Let's pick it up at verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. This is one of my favorite verses coming up, 25. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, your brothers, why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Second thing. Stephen highlights is that Moses became the rejected rescuer. The rejected rescuer. So even though he's brought up in Pharaoh's household, Moses knew the people to which he belonged. He tries to make things better for them and he fails miserably, at least initially. But that's not Stephen's point. What's he trying to draw out here is that here was this man sent by God to deliver his people, although not yet ready to do so properly being rejected by the very people he was meant to be rescuing. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Asked the Hebrew man whom Moses had been challenging. Verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. Third highlight, Moses was the one to whom and through whom the God of glory, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob revealed himself in a fresh way. Tom Wright again. Part of the point here, as always in early Christian explanation before fellow Jews, is that the God they've come to know in and through Jesus is not a different God from the one made known to their ancestors, but precisely the same one doing precisely the same thing. That is, rescuing his people in fulfillment of his ancient promises. Some things have changed. A lot of things haven't. Everything hinges on how you frame the story. So what appears to be happening is that Moses is about as far removed from the center of God's will as you could be. 
He's serving long years as a shepherd on behalf of his father-in-law. He's nowhere close to Egypt, nor is he anywhere near the people he's supposed to be rescuing. But in the burning bush, God shows up again. A thin place opens up between heaven and earth, and a moment of vision occurs. And neither Moses, Israel, nor the world are ever the same. Now notice with me, Stephen's speech in no way disses Moses. In fact, he's insisting on the opposite, that Moses was both prepared by God and equipped by God, both through his sense of vocation and calling and then his dramatic recalling at the burning bush. And it's in this moment of vision that we get a fresh sense of holy ground more ancient, more deeply rooted than the temple itself. And the holy ground sense is this, that wherever God reveals God's self as the savior of his people, bringing plans that while they might seem new and surprising are in fact the fulfillment of what he has said long ago, wherever that happens, that place becomes holy. So what lies ahead in Stephen's speech has been set up brilliantly by this reframing of Moses' story. And Stephen is about to say that the holiness of what God has done and is doing in Jesus himself is now essentially upstaging the holiness of the temple. Again, the main thing we gotta pay attention to is the question of how to tell the story. The story of Israel, of Jesus, the early Christians, and of ourselves. And what might surprise us is that this isn't primarily a matter of being good storytellers or gifted storytellers. Now, creativity matters, skill matters, Stephen had both. But when it comes to telling our story as God's people, the main thing is not how gifted we are at spinning a good yarn. It's about watching for the places both in the story of scripture and in our own lives where suddenly God wants to reveal God's self in a fresh way. There are burning bushes all over the place, if we knew where to look. It's about cultivating the art of noticing. As I sit and consider the future of our church, I continue to look ahead with wonder. What new stories will people tell as they look back on Artisan Church? What new things God was doing in our day? Now, the next section, We're going to skip around a little bit, but I'm reading essentially between 35 and 50, and I'll try to let you know where I'm going. Verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor 
and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? When you and I go into a store, a restaurant, and we see that something has been made by hand, we know what that means, right? It, it, it suggests good quality. It suggests that this is going to be something a little bit more special than something that was perhaps churned out by a lifeless machine or a computer. It means some, someone has put in some special concerted effort. It says, you're going to appreciate this more so long as you buy it. This general understanding of something handmade applies, of course, whether we're talking about an item of clothing, uh, a puppet like my wife Terry makes, a pair of shoes, a piece of furniture, or craft beer. But in the ancient world, saying something was made by hand carried a much different meaning. If it was made by hand, then it meant God has not made it or commanded it. It was merely a human invention. So when the phrase referred to something someone worshipped, well, that is about as bad as things could get. In all major Jewish writing, there was no more foundational sin than idolatry, which simply means worshipping something as if it was God when it clearly wasn't. And the way idols get produced, of course, is by human hands. A long line of God's prophets spoke against this. The sheer absurdity of idolatry is highlighted significantly in ancient Jewish writings. This, this kind of refrain happens over and over again. Oh, you're going to manufacture a god first and then worship it? Yeah, that makes total sense. Jewish writers were literally incredulous time and time again. Read the Psalm, uh, Psalm 115 is a good example. And that right there is the punchline of the last part of Stephen's amazing speech that this is precisely what his own people had done with their own temple. Well, now the Sanhedrin are shocked and appalled. Up to this point, Stephen's been tracking their story closely. He's moving from Abraham to Joseph to Moses. And some might have had issues with certain bits he was emphasizing, but no one could argue his overall telling of the narrative. But then things take a turn. Building on the fact that the children of Israel had rejected Moses, even though God had sent him as their rescuer and deliverer, Stephen unleashes a much more serious charge. So the accused becomes the accuser, saying in essence, first you rejected Moses. If that wasn't bad enough, you failed to worship God even after he delivered you. Even so, God stuck by you in the wilderness, but still you did not acknowledge him. You've preferred worshiping manufactured idols instead, even while God was showing you how to truly worship. And as for the temple, you guys, I'm still paraphrasing, it was always ambiguous at best, since God doesn't actually live in houses made by human hands. And at its worst, it too has become an idol. What matters is not just the story itself, but how it gets told. 
the brilliance of Stephen is taking the entire Jewish temple theology and using Israel's own story and her own prophets turns it on its head. The Most High doesn't live in shrines like this. Heaven is God's throne. Earth is God's footstool. The entire cosmos cannot contain him since he made it all in the first place. They had royally missed the point. Remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman he had met at Jacob's well. The time is coming. It has in fact come when what you're called will not matter and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. Our First Nations brothers and sisters instinctively get the fact that the divine can't be contained in human-made structures. Um, there's a book called The Wisdom of Native Americans written by Kent Nurburn, and I love this section. I just want to read you a little passage. This is a two-slide quote, but so worth it. Stay with me. Kent Nurburn writes, There are no temples or shrines among us save those of nature. Being children of nature, we are intensely poetical. We would deem it sacrilege to build a house for the one who may be met face to face in the mysterious shadowy aisles of the primeval forest or on the sunlit bosom of virgin prairies, upon dizzy spires and pinnacles of naked rock and in the vast jeweled vault of the night sky. A God who is enrobed in filmy veils of cloud there on the rim of the visible world where our great-grandfather sun kindles his evening campfire, who rides upon the rigorous wind of the north or breathes forth spirit upon fragrant southern airs, whose war canoe is launched upon majestic rivers and island seas. Such a God needs no lesser cathedral. Oh, that's good. So... Not only is there an over-glorification of the temple happening, the temple is also being used by the religious elite to reject Jesus. And in this moment, Stephen pulls no punches in saying these Jewish leaders are out of line with their own tradition. It's heavy, right? This is serious stuff. They're the children of Abraham, but they're not listening to God like Abraham did. They're the heirs of Moses, but even though the law was given to him by God, they have not kept that law. They are the successors of earlier generations of Israelites, but sadly, they're repeating the same pattern that their ancestors had, killing prophets, killing righteous people sent by God. Stephen was the one being charged, but he turns the tables and he lays out charges on them. He must have known what the effect would have been. Must have known. Verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know exactly what that looked like. I won't try. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I'm going to pause there. Some commentators um, have commented that, that when a lot of the, this, these prophecies of Jesus sitting 
it's Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, and that he's standing here is, is a symbol of him coming to greet Stephen, standing up and greeting Stephen as he comes. I don't know, but I love that thought. 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, foreshadowing. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And we had said this, he fell asleep. The stoning was because of the sermon he gave, which was not an evangelistic one so much as we might think of it. He didn't get stoned to death for mentioning the name of Jesus. He was killed because he issued a direct critique of power. He leveled a critique at the foundation of an injustice. Now what's amazing to me, not to mention humbling, is Stephen's posture toward his accusers even in the face of death. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's just called them out for 68 verses, some verses, yet he says, don't hold this sin against them. In the 16th century, there was a group of Christ followers who started to see things a little differently. They were called Anabaptists. Some of you may have heard of them. This is the faith tradition out of which our denomination, the Mennonite Brethren, was birthed. Now, one thing the early Anabaptists felt particularly strongly about was that the church should be a voluntary community as opposed to one that you're more or less coerced into with little or no choice. So what happened around that time was these early Christ followers began to be able to read scripture for themselves. And the pattern that they saw emerging, particularly in the Gospels, was people willingly responding to Jesus' call to follow me and then being baptized. So in their day, being rebaptized that's the meaning of Anabaptist, amounted to both religious and civil disobedience, and they paid a steep price for it. But even in the face of persecution, these early Anabaptists thought it necessary to do what Jesus did and taught, namely to turn the other cheek, to embrace nonviolence. And many were either drowned in rivers or burned at the stake. So in 1568, one of these Anabaptist believers named Dirk Willems was being pursued by a magistrate who was trying to enforce the church's position on various matters. So he's on the run, and Dirk began to run across a frozen river. He makes it to the other side. The magistrate, on the other hand, didn't. He fell through the ice. And so from the opposite side of the river, Dirk turned around, he saw this happen, and he runs back. He pulls the magistrate out of the freezing water so that he lived. This is a, a famous etching from the 19, or 1685 edition of a book called Martyr's Mirror. So Willems was then recaptured by his pursuer and held until he was burned at the stake near his hometown a short while later. Just this past week, I came across a tweet by Heather Thompson Day. She writes, my student killed a motorcyclist in an accident. It destroyed him. He dropped out of school, severe depression. Want to know what pulled him out of it? The parents of the man he killed. They asked him to meet for dinner. 
he now goes once a year. Forgiveness is healing. Stephen, like Dirk Willems, like the parents of the motorcyclist, like Jesus, was willing to die for his faith, but he wasn't willing to kill for it. And even in his death, Stephen embodied the main point he had been preaching, that God's presence cannot be localized. No building can confine God or inhibit God's activity. And if God has any home on earth, it is with God's people through the spirit of Jesus. Where was Jesus when Stephen was being stoned? He was in his last words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What matters is how you tell the story. I don't know who among us needs to hear the reminder of this truth today, that our God is an uncontainable God. That in contrast to those who for various reasons couldn't or wouldn't see this, whether it was a fear of losing control, a desire to cling to their own sense of power or status, whatever it was, that we would be those who choose to stand with Stephen and the long line of scriptural witnesses in reaffirming that there's nowhere God is not. All ground is holy ground if we could only perceive it and learn to see it that way. I don't know who needs this, but I pray we'll receive it as good news this morning. And before we come to the table, I want to lead us in a prayer of response, a written prayer. It'll be up on the screen in a few slides. And it's called The God We Would Rather Have. It was written by Walter Brueggemann. And maybe it'll be an opportunity to name ways in which we may on occasion, whether we're aware of them or not, try to box God in. To name that, confess it, and maybe then to realign with the reality Stephen's been pointing toward. So with me, would you pause, let's be still for a brief moment, and then I'm going to invite us, if you would like, to read aloud uh, this prayer. If you want to just silently read along, that's absolutely fine too, of course. But let's take a moment of stillness, and then we'll walk through this together, and I'll invite us to the table following that. If you'd like to join me, please do. We are your people, and mostly we don't mind, except that you do not fit any of our categories. We keep pushing and pulling and twisting and turning, trying to make you fit the God we would rather have. And every time we distort you that way, we end up with an idol more congenial to us. In our more honest moments of grief and pain, we are very glad that you are who you are 
and that you move toward us in all your freedom. So be your faithful self, and by your very engagement in the suffering of the world, blow the doors off our boxes and keep remaking us. We pray in the name of Jesus, the uncontainable one, who is the sign of your suffering love.